And we shouldn't be shy. And we should be out there proud. You know, it's not who we are. I know we don't brag about ourselves, but you know what? Our grain farmers should be bragging. They really should be. They should be proud and they should be talking about it because they are the best in the world, not because of the volumes they go, but how they go about doing it and how they take care of the environment. And the same with their cattle and, and uh, other producers, you know, we have the best practices there is on the planet. We should talk about that. We shouldn't be shy. Welcome to episode 15 of Fireside Chats with Aaron. I'm your host, Aaron Gowerluck. As executive director of the Grain Growers of Canada, I started this podcast to serve as a forum for real conversations with industry influencers and policymakers. Today's guest is the Member of Parliament for Prince Albert, Randy Hoback. Mr. Hoback has served as an MP for 13 years now with the Conservative Party of Canada, but has a long history in agriculture prior to being elected. He began working in the industry for Flexcoil and then Case New Holland before taking over the family farm in 2000. He grew the farm substantially while also developing a custom spraying and trucking business. In 2005, he was nominated for Saskatchewan Young Farmer of the Year Award. Randy has also served as chair of one of our member organizations, the Western Canadian Wheat Growers Association. Since being elected, he has been a constant advocate for agriculture and trade, serving in a number of capacities and on various House of Commons committees, including as current member of the Standing Committee on International Trade. Randy, thank you for stopping by today for a fireside chat. Great to be here, Aaron. And, uh, you know, in 2005, uh, it wasn't just myself. Uh, Sherilyn Jolly was also nominated that year. and She was the president of the week course, so we had both the chair and the president of the organization nominated in the same year. So uh, that was an interesting year. It, I'm sure it was. Well, thank you for letting me know. And I, I'm calling you both Randy and Mr. Hoback. I'm so accustomed to calling you Randy. Do you mind if I continue to do oh, that? Please. Mr. Hoback, <laughs> I'm looking for my dad. So uh, yes, please. Well, I know our members are really looking forward to this conversation because you are someone that when we're together in the nation's capital uh, with, with our directors and our farmer members from across the country, you are always on our hit list of folks to stop by and have a conversation with. So we haven't been able to do that in recent months. So I know they're really going to appreciate the conversation that we have here today. And hopefully we can do this in person soon. Yes, hopefully very soon. So I don't have to remind you of the importance of international trade to Canada's agriculture sector, but that doesn't always seem to be the case with everyone. How do you generally go about raising awareness of the importance of trade with your colleagues from all parties? You know, I just keep reminding them how many jobs are tied to trade, and especially in the agriculture sector. And whether it's in Saskatchewan or in Ontario or Nova Scotia, it's all tied to trade. So 90% of you know, what we grow and, and produce here in Canada is dependent on trade. So when you start putting it back to on a, on a per riding basis, you can always draw an example in most ridings of somebody uh, who's a constituent and who is selling something that's being exported outside of Canada. So just reminding people of that, but I think most rural MPs are very aware of trade and very aware of the importance it is to their economy. So what advice then would you have, I'll take this opportunity to ask you, you know, for groups like ours, right? Our members are, are export dependent. What advice would you have for us as an association in terms of how we ensure government understands the importance of trade to our sector and that it remains central to their priorities? You know, I think you have to educate the folks in the city ridings, the other MPs that are coming out of Toronto and out of the bigger centres. We don't necessarily understand where their food comes from. I think you've got to spend time with them. I think you also have to be a, you know, on the hill quite often just talking about some of the issues that you're facing as they occur. So it's a constant 
reemphasizing the importance of trading, constantly being back in front of people's faces, telling them what you're dealing with and looking for solutions and help in dealing with those problems. Thanks. And we certainly miss some of those more organic opportunities, if you will, when we see you on the Hill, when we're there for committee meetings, a lot of that now is obviously being done, done virtually. Yeah. And that's due to COVID, which has obviously been very disruptive for businesses and economies around the world. In addition to existing barriers, farmers are increasingly concerned with growing protectionism globally. What role, in your view, should government play in reinforcing global trade and championing science-based rules? Well, I think we have to always be science-based in everything we do. Uh, that is the actual, you know, the yardstick that we need to measure everything to. Uh, you know, with COVID-19, I think we're seeing a, a lot of reactionary and um, different types of trading patterns possibly emerging. And one of the things we did in the, this last summer is we started talking to people in different countries about how they see trade patterns post-COVID. You know, assuming everybody's vaccinated and we're back to a normal world, do we see things trading as they normally would? Now, uh, in some, some conversations, they feel it will. In other conversations, different sectors will have some uh, variations that will happen. For example, in manufacturing, um, they're looking for other alternatives than just one country to supply one item. So they may look for two countries or three countries. So there's an opportunity there for Canada to actually uh, pick up that because we have trade agreements with so many countries around the world. But of course, one of our biggest issues here in Canada is costs and our costs of production are higher than other parts of the world. And when you look at that, it puts us out of the ballpark. So you can have all the trade agreements that you want, but if you don't have an effective cost of production, uh, if you're not efficient, um, then you're still not participating in trade. So we have some challenges for sure, but uh, I think post-COVID things should flow relatively normal. There might be some hiccups here and there, but no different than any hiccups we've had before. Canada has successfully signed free trade trade agreements now, Randy, with about two-thirds of the world's economy, including many important markets for Canada's agriculture sector. However, we still have several examples where we have issues arriving from newly signed trade agreements. You know, we look at what's happening, for example, with Canadian Durham into Italy and country of origin labeling, uh, Vietnam with weed seeds under the CPTPP. The sector has been advocating for the establishment or the installment of a new position, uh, trade enforcement officer or trade implementation officer, as a way to ensure that we have a resource that is focused on resolving these types of issues. How would your party tackle these trade issues and improve both enforcement and implementation of free trade agreements? Well, I think you actually have to show some, uh, some backbone here and actually take these people to task. Uh, use the WTO to your uh, benefit and actually do the actual launches, um, launch the complaints and, and follow them through and don't let them sit there and just kind of go on to infinity and not be resolved. I also think you have to have the proper resources around the world when these issues come up so that you can actually address them right away, very quickly. So if that's CFIA, for example, you've got to be able to, to respond quickly when the country makes a claim or an accusation on something that's happening. Um, and we need to defend that and we need to go hard at it. Um, the, the way this government's been handling it is basically put its head in the sand and hoping it goes away. But each country that they do that with just gives an example for another country to proceed with putting in an Ontario trade barrier that restricts our market access. And, you know, that is one concern that we've had heard of in the areas of our conversations. It's, you might see some countries be a little protective post-COVID and, and try to protect their you know, different sectors and different industries. And that's why I think we need to be more aggressive and be more vigilant 
in regards to uh, uh, dealing with these types of issues when they occur. Okay, I want to I ask you about some of that, but let's start with some additional resources, perhaps an improved capacity. So, you know, beyond reacting to issues after they emerge, we are seeing a greater need for capacity and more proactive engagement with regulators in fast growing markets, you know, like Asia, Bangladesh and Indonesia. Improved capacity, you know, one example of that could be an Asia Trade Diversification Office, could help Canada monitor the trade environment, influence and shape policy choices, and establish the connections needed to respond in a more proactive manner. Do you see this as an opportunity to strengthen Canada's, Canada's engagement on trade issues and improve diversification in developing markets? You know, it's, it's definitely an option to work looking at. We, we do have trade commissioners around the world, and for most markets, they're actually very, very good. But I'll use the example in Japan. Uh, Japan has these huge trading houses, and these trading houses export all over Asia. So if you can make Canadian beef, for example, part of that ingredient for that food component that they're exporting right across Asia, you want to get in there. And they love the Canadian product. They like the quality. They like the, uh, uh, the taste and the flavor and everything that comes with it. They actually like the, the, the story behind the Canadian product. And I think we need to be better at telling that story. But if we can insert ourselves, you actually create a price advantage. And you, you kind of, you know, having that first mover advantage, for example, in Japan has kept the U.S. out of that market. It's kept the Australians out of that market. And because they know you and they're comfortable dealing with you, it's not so much price sensitive as they want to make sure they have a consistent product year in, year out. So it doesn't allow your competitors to come in and try to steal that market away from you. So we need to make sure we're taking advantage of those types of uh, trading houses or food processors in these countries and uh, be part of those ingredients for uh, the meals that they're producing around Asia. And that'd be just one example. So further to your previous comments, you know, as a middle power, Canada depends on an open, predictable and international uh, trade environment. But there are obviously some nations that, that don't support this view. When I had the chance to sit down with your leader this summer, we had a fireside conversation, Aaron O'Toole was critical of this government's approach to China, calling it naive, and he suggested that Canada has to have a real politic when dealing with China. So my question to you would be then, how do we balance our need for or dependence on one of or soon to be the largest economy globally when they don't always play by the same set of rules? Exactly. And I think it's not just Canada trying to figure that out. I think Australia, the U.S., uh, there's other countries in Europe that are trying to figure out how to handle China and how to make sure that they become a, a, a player in the marketplace that's fair, that treats people fair. Um, you know, it's such a big market, you don't want to walk away from it. But in the same breath, if you're not being treated, if you're not treated fairly, uh, it does create problems. One thing I see with the Chinese market, we're going to get impacted by that market from a variety of different angles. So you could see the U.S. create its own trade issues, and all of a sudden there's a huge demand for Canadian wheat. And all of a sudden the U.S. solves those trade issues, and all of a sudden they, they switch over to American wheat. Uh, it becomes very unpredictable. And uh, I think those are types of roller coaster rides we're going to have with China over the next few years until they start to come in line with WTO rules, come in line with science-based regulatory procedures, come in line with proper marketing and pricing mechanisms and oversight. You know, these are issues that not only Canada's had with China, these are issues that other countries have had too and they're trying to address them. So you're going to probably see more countries banding together instead of hanging alone and trying to make sure we get China to be a proper, fair player. Anything else that you or your party would do to have or encourage China to come in line, like you say, with so many of these rules-based trade, uh, these, these rules that we rely on? 
anything that you would encourage them to do? Yeah, you know, I, I go back to the days of Harper, and we had kind of issues in China when, when Harper was prime minister. Stephen Harper had it front and center on his list. When he went over there, he talked about it, and we found a solution. Now, was it perfect? No, but it was at least a solution that allowed us to still export canola to China. It allowed them to save face. It allowed us to maintain that market. And yet we could still stress the importance of human rights, still talk about issues that we thought were a concern uh, with individual freedoms in China and maintain that balance. Now, that's getting harder and harder to do because of what things we're hearing. Uh, and it's also getting harder and harder to do because other countries are taking and making moves into China along the same area. So uh, that's why I'm saying this is going to be a roller coaster ride. But one thing that Chinese do appreciate is strength and consistency. And I think we need a leadership like Aaron O'Toole that will be strong and consistent and fair and balanced. And uh, by doing that, I think we'll have more of a bankable partner in China in regards to seeing them purchasing our raw products and our commodities. Do you see the United States as being an ally in that fight? I mean, over the last four years, it has been obviously relatively unpredictable. The United States has been. But what opportunities do you see for agriculture now under the Biden administration? You know, whether it's directly between Canada and the U.S. or, like you said, collaborating on the international stage to support free and fair trade. You know, I think we need a little more time to see exactly. He has made some moves, which I like. He he acknowledged the importance of the WTO. He he isn't in there trying to... uh, blow it all up, which would have been disastrous for Canada and other countries around the world. Um, so we've seen Biden at least make some positive moves in that regards. But how he does things uh, with countries like China, TPP, uh, areas like that are still yet to be determined. Now, they can be a, a great friend and ally, or they can be a, a burr on our side. And, and we've experienced both sides of that coin. But I don't think we can make that determination yet, uh, based on what we've seen so far. But I'm hopeful. Because uh, if we can work with the U.S. and Australia and Europe and the U.K., uh, that's the only way you're going to get countries like China to actually follow and play by the rules. And it also creates some stability, not only with China, but around the world in regards to how we trade our commodities and how we trade our products and uh, making sure nobody cheats or starts to create subsidies or or other issues that would be non-tariff triggers or impact trade that would hurt us here in Canada. Let's shift gears for a moment, Randy, and talk a bit about another emerging influence with respect to international trade. You know, environmental sustainability and trade seem to be increasingly linked. Canadian agriculture has a great sustainability story to tell. As we know, Uh, farmers' existing practices here in Canada contribute positively to the environment. How does Canada promote our story internationally and counter some of these growing and divergent views on agriculture and sustainability? You know, I take, for example, some of those that were outlined in the European Union's farm to fork strategy. You know, we haven't done a good job of that. And I'm going to put that right back at our associations here in Canada. I'm going to put it back to the sector itself. Uh, We haven't done a proper job explaining all the things that we're doing that are great for the environment. And we're not getting credit for it. But, you know, like, like case in point is zero tillage here. We've been doing zero tillage back to my days at FlexiCoil. We are global leaders on it. We make the best zero tillage equipment in the world, and we ship it all over the world. Yet we get no credit for it. You know, and as we see different plans like net zero by 2050 and places like that, this is where grain farmers should actually get acknowledged, acknowledged for the work that they've done, the great work they've done, and actually get paid for it. And I think that's a fight that needs to be had because right now they're not getting paid for it, and that's not fair. And that needs to change. So that means that they need to accept the fact that we've been good stewards of the land, that we've been making the right decisions and doing things appropriately and actually ahead of everybody else in the world uh, in what we've been doing and actually teaching other people in the world. And we need to get credit for that. So we need to tell that story because it's a great story. 
And it shouldn't just be A&W talking about it. And I, when I refer to A&W, the grass-fed beef program, the commercials they have on TV, uh, we need to see more stuff like that. And we need to educate our consumers here in Canada, but we also need to tie that into our marketing around the world. Because it is a commodity, and I do get the, the idea that a commodity is a quantity is a commodity, but it is a little bit of a niche product too when you start adding in the environmental factors. And it might be able to attract that premium markets like Japan or in the EU or in the UK that other countries can't attract because they don't have the same practices that we have. Okay. You talked about a role for associations. What more do you think we should be doing in this space? Who should we be talking to? Are there any existing forums, for example, Randy, that you think that we should be leveraging? We've got to get into the consumer groups. We've got to talk to the consumer groups and show them what we're doing and how we're doing it. And we shouldn't be shy. We should be out there proud. You know, it's not who we are. I know we don't brag about ourselves, but you know what? Our grain farmers should be bragging. They really should be. They should be proud and they should be talking about it because they are the best in the world, not because of the volumes they grow, but how they go about doing it and how they take care of the environment. And the same with our cattle and, and uh, other producers. You know, We have the best practices there is on the planet. We should talk about that. We shouldn't be shy. And uh, when we do that, the consumer will understand that, hey, I, yeah, maybe I have to pay a little bit more, but at least we know it's being done right. And um, I don't think we've just done a good enough job communicating that in the different mechanisms of communicating that are available. How familiar are you with the code of practice that's being proposed, the responsible grain code of practice? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you have a level of familiarity with what's being proposed there? Just through talking to other farmers who are looking at it and different people that are friends and associations, this looks to me to be a, a solution that doesn't have a problem here in Canada. And, uh, you know, so I look at it and saying, okay, you're asking us to, to adopt something that nobody's asking anybody else to adopt and nobody's requiring. And I think if you looked at it, you'd say, well, why? I remember back in my days at Flexco when I was a marketing manager in Europe, uh, the UK brought in this accountability schemes for the hog producers. So they went through to the hog farmers and said, if you do this in your yard, if you add in these types of buildings, these types of pens, make all these changes, uh, we will buy your hogs and we'll feature them in the supermarkets in the UK. So a lot of farmers spent big dollars going through that process to be accountable and, and have that mechanism for the market in the UK. All of a sudden, the hog market dropped globally, uh, price dropped substantially globally. What do these supermarkets do? They just went back in the market and bought the cheapest hogs they could find. And I'm very cautious of things like that, where you force your consumer, your producers into expensive programs, and then all of a sudden something changes and they're no longer cost competitive and they can't compete in the global marketplace. Uh, so I'm very cautious on things like that. I would like to highlight all the things we're doing now, because like I said, they're still miles ahead of everybody else in the world in regards to no-till practices, for example, or how we raise our care for our animals and livestock. So I think we've got lots of things that we can be proud of and talk about. I don't think we need to have a code of conduct coming out of Ottawa to tell us how to do it. Okay. So concern there with respect to costs, whether it's around new equipment or new practices, but if the code or some version of it, for example, was served as a forum or a vehicle to showcase some of what Canadian farmers are already doing, you think there's potential there? You know, that's an interesting idea. And, uh, you know, if, the, if we could use, turn that around a little bit and put into the fact that we've done these practices and talk about the practices that we're already doing, I think you see a lot of farmers say, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, give me credit for the no-till. Give me credit for how I raise my livestock. Let me show you how we're doing it. If you can use that tool uh, or use that as a tool for promoting Canadian agriculture, 
and what it's doing now, uh, I think that's great. And if there's some best practices that we should be striving to achieve, well, then we should be working through our associations and saying, okay, this is one thing that maybe we should be doing a better job of. And the associations and the producers will accept new technologies. They're very early adopters if it makes sense to them. So uh, instead of, again, being government-driven, I'd rather have it producer-driven through the associations and the groups like that and then come back to Ottawa with a, with a game plan and then work together to see how we can get that out in an appropriate fashion. Yeah, and farmer-driven often increases uptake of any of those programs. Exactly right. So maybe in closing, I really appreciate your time today, Randy. It's great to connect. In closing, I want to ask you a, a, a big picture question. There seems to be a lot of chatter about an election this spring. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on the likelihood of that. And further, should your party win the next election? How would the trade agenda differ from the current government? And what would you hope the legacy for a trade minister under a conservative government might be? You know, uh, those are lots of questions. And the election one, I guess the only thing I can think of is in the middle of COVID, we've just gone through a second wave, numbers starting to come back down. And now they're already talking about a third wave. And until we see vaccinations, I think uh, we need to learn from the Newfoundland example and, and not go down that path. I think that's just not an option right now. It's just not a safe thing to do. I think Canadians would really be bitter if that was the case that they were faced with. Um, in regards to the trade minister, you know, one thing I think we need to do a better job of is we've got the trade deals in place, but we haven't been taking advantage of trade deals. We need to look at the regulatory side of things. We need to look at the science-based side of things. And we need to make sure that we fix those things in the trade deals that we already have. So we've got to address the EU situation for beef, for example. We've got to address uh, market access issues. And then we should be also working with our partners in the U.S. on uh, developing consistent regulatory approaches to uh, products that we purchase. So, for example, uh, chemical products, uh, vaccinations, things like that, uh, where we can actually maybe streamline that process and be consistent uh, with our cousins in the U.S., one might say. So there might be more, instead of a, you know trying to get more trade deals, taking the trade deals that we have and making them better and stronger, modernizing them, uh, and enforcing the rules that are there so that we take advantage of them. And then, you know, there's some ideas that you've talked about today about having different offices around the world or different types of commissioners. We do have the trade commissioner services. So do we need to retweak that a little bit to make it more egg friendly? Do we need to put it more resources in different markets that seem to be a better market, a better fit for us than other markets? Do we need to relook at that? I think we should always be doing that. I think that's something that's consistently should be in flex and, and reflective of what is going on in the Canadian economy and where we need to sell our goods. So if we need more people in Asia, then we should be putting more people in Asia. If that should switch to Africa two years from now, three years from now, well, then we should be adjusting to accommodate that. So there's lots of things I think still that needs to be done, but it may not be a, a new trade deal, one might say. It might be just taking advantage of what's there. Excellent. Well, that is a good note on which to end the conversation. Thank you very much for your time again today. It's great to see you. You bet. Thanks, Aaron. And uh, you're doing a great job. And uh, thank you for having me. It's uh, kind of a walk down memory lane in some ways. Absolutely. We were having many of these conversations where we not a, a few years ago when we first met. So some of these things still remain unresolved, unfortunately. Unfortunately. But, you know, I think there's opportunity. There's you know, much you need to do. You need to identify when there's an opportunity to move something forward and when there isn't. I think there's some good opportunities to, to push on the science-based side of things coming forward post-COVID. Because I think science will be front and center in a lot of things. And uh, we can use that as an example on why it should apply to the grain sector or the beef sector. So, uh, you know, that's why I think we need to take advantage of that and push that really hard. 
and uh, you know, keep doing what we're doing because we're doing it very well. And uh, I think we've got a great industry and we need to be proud of it and proud of it right across this country. And uh, I'm glad to be a part of it. Okay, so the conversation then continues. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Fireside Chats with Aaron. We will be back in two weeks time with another special guest. In the meantime, if you want to stay up to date on all things GGC, please follow us on Twitter at Grain Growers or on Instagram at Canada's Grain Growers. Until then.